I'm going to read from Philip's version, from verse 1, Romans chapter 13, from verse 1. Every Christian ought to obey the civil authorities, for all legitimate authority is derived from God's authority, and the existing authority is appointed under God. To oppose authority, then, is to oppose God, and such opposition is bound to be punished. The honest citizen has no need to fear the keepers of law and order, but the dishonest man will always be nervous of them. If you want to avoid this anxiety, just lead a law-abiding life, and all that can come your way is a word of approval. The officer is God's servant for your protection. But if you are leading a wicked life, you have reason to be alarmed. The power of the law, which is vested in every legitimate officer, is no empty phrase. He is, in fact, divinely appointed to inflict God's punishment upon evildoers. You should, therefore, obey the authorities, not simply because it is the safest, but because it is the right thing to do. It is right, too, for you to pay taxes for the civil authorities are appointed by God for the good purposes of public order and well-being. Give everyone his legitimate due, whether it be rates or taxes or reverence or respect. Keep out of debt altogether except that perpetual debt of love which we owe one another. The man who loves his neighbor has obeyed the whole law in regard to his neighbor. For the commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, and all other commandments are summed up in this one saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love hurts nobody. Therefore, love is the answer to the law's commands. Why all this stress on behavior? Because, as I think you have realized, the present time is of the highest importance. It is time to wake up to reality. Every day brings God's salvation nearer. The night is nearly over. The day has almost dawned. Let us therefore fling away the things that men do in the dark. Let us arm ourselves for the fight of the day. Let us live cleanly as in the daylight, not in the delights of getting drunk or playing with sex, nor yet in quarreling or jealousies. Let us be Christ's men from head to foot and give no chances to the flesh to have its fling. Well, now, this evening, you will just turn to one verse in Ephesians and chapter 4. Ephesians and chapter 4 and verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called. 
I beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith ye were called. I want to speak this evening about relationships, not relationships in the church, vital as that is, and important really in many ways, um, as it is to talk about that here in this company. But we have often talked about relationships one to another, and um, I want this evening to really <clears throat> take up another aspect of um, uh, relationships um, more outward, in a sense. I want to deal this evening with those relationships we all have to the government, to the state, to the country, and then to our places of employment, whether on the employer side or the employee side, whichever side we are, and then in the home. Relationships. See, it's very interesting. The Apostle Paul, after this tremendous um, uh, message on the purpose of God and what we are in Christ and all that God has done for us, saved us by his grace and placed us in his Son and has a tremendous um, plan for his Son and for us in him, then he brings it all down to the humdrum side of life. Now, the Word of God, especially in the Apostle Paul's letters, but the Word of God, in fact, everywhere, never just outlines so many truths as such, or so many laws as such, or um, uh, ethics as such. You know, some people, you can take the Bible and just think it's a collection of ethics. And that's why it is very, very interesting that there are whole areas of uh, books in the Bible which people just skid over. They simply skid over. They go, oh, this is all ethics, you know. We're not under law. All ethics. So we all dwell so often on the first chapters, which are so marvellous and so inexhaustible and fathomless, but when it comes to all these practical little things about him that's, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him work with his hands, providing that which is meat for himself, uh, those are things we say, well, of course, that, that's, uh, that goes without saying. Now, it is more than a little instructive that almost half of the Ephesian letter, one of the greatest letters of all, is taken up with the most practical instruction. Things like immorality. Adultery, you would hardly think it needs to be said amongst Christians. Fornication. Drunkenness. You wouldn't think it hardly needs to be said, would you? And that's why most of us skid over these things, you see. We just sort of bypass it all. And then, of course, many other things as well. About not lying. You wouldn't think that needs to be said to Christians, would you? And uh, bitterness, clamor, division, faction, all these things are all here in this letter tremendous amount about uh, um, uh, our jobs and 
our attitude there, our homes and our attitude there, and, and so on and, and so forth. The fact is that sometimes we tend to look upon these things as a list of regulations, a kind of outlining of Christian ethics. This is sort of Christian morality. And therefore, we feel, well now, I can't keep this. Anyway, it's far too high a standard for me to keep. So we don't sort of um, uh, take too much note of that. We feel the really important uh, things are in the first part of the letter, and the same in other letters. Now, we're not wrong. The fact is that the really important matters are dealt with in the first part of the letter. That's the point I'm trying to make. God's word never just outlines ethics as ethics or laws and regulations as laws and regulations or uh, uh, something else akin to that. Always, wherever you look, it is related or they are related to what we are in Christ. In other words, wherever you look in, in the book, you will find that it's immediate what we are in Christ. First and foremost, God's tremendous purpose and plan for us in Christ. And then out of that comes all this practical teaching on our jobs, upon our relationships with one another, our relationships to the government of the country in which we live or to which we belong, our relationships in the home, and so on and so forth. Now, isn't that interesting? In other words, what the, the Lord is, see, seeks to say to us again and again in these letters is, you are this, therefore behave like this. Or as the Lord Jesus put it, by their fruit ye shall know them. In other words, it is not the leaves on the tree that matter, but the fruit on the tree that matters. That is the final criterion. And these letters are all about the fruit on the tree. The first letters, if you, the first chapters or the first things, foundational things, are to do with the tree itself. How we became to be such a tree. But the last is all to do with the fruit by which we can tell that it's the right kind of tree. It's not that we've got so many laws and regulations, but rather that we've received a kind of nature, a kind of life, that must manifest itself in this way. And therefore, when there is lying or drunkenness or immorality or breakdown in one way or another, factional division, it's because we're not abiding in Christ, and Christ is not abiding in us. It's the old man again, pressing itself into the things of God under the guise of the things of God, perhaps dressed up as a Christian. <laughs> but it's still the old man. Maybe the most knowledgeable old man in the world. Maybe, maybe the most biblically knowledgeable man in the old, uh, old man in the whole world. But it's still the old man. Now we must get hold of this, for it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that makes us free from the law of sin and of death. 
It's when we get hold of it that it's not just a collection of ethics, just a collection of laws, a listing of so many thou shalt not and thou shalt, but rather that because we are this in Christ and Christ is this in us, we can be freed from all that other kind of thing and can live an altogether impossible life. Now that's exactly really what the church should be. It should be the living of something quite impossible. We have United Nations, so-called, many other things, so-called, that have the name United, and they're just a farce. Just a farce. And the devil works unceasingly to make the church a farce. So that here we are, Christ is the answer we proclaim from the pulpit. Christ is the answer we say in the streets. Christ is the answer we say easily on our lips. Comes. Christ is the answer. And yet, you see, the whole thing the world looks for is, is he really the answer? Can these people stick together? Can they love each other? Can they really, as it were, encompass everyone? all the, those that they naturally wouldn't get on with. Can they really do it? Can they really have that mind in them which was in Christ Jesus? Can they go through where every other human attempt at unity has failed? Now you understand why the devil has made an absolute uh, goal of the destruction of the ones of Christ. Now that's why these letters are all to do with this kind of very, very practical business. It's really as if God gives us a panoramic view of his great purpose from before time on into eternity to come. He gives us a, an absolute panoramic view of the whole thing and then brings us back down to earth with a bump. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called. What is the calling? Well, it's tremendous if you look at some of these letters. Why, you just think of this Ephesian letter as an example. Just, just take it as an example. First, you had this tremendous um, three chapters. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Accepted in the beloved. And then what? God's great purpose to sum up all things in Christ. And you also are in him. He is heritage. It's just tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. And then the apostle goes on to outline how it all came about. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's all right, he said. You were quickened together with Christ. Raised up together with him. Made to sit together with him in heavenly places. And even the, the works that you're going to do are all afore-prepared that you should walk in them. It's just simply tremendous. And then he, he, as it were, from this great vantage point, viewing the whole of the land from end to end, he says to us, and look here, God has taken two diametrically opposed um, people, races in this world, and has made of them one new man in Christ, abolishing the middle wall of petition, the Gentile and the Jew. No more Gentile, no more Jew. 
But in Christ, one new man. And then he goes on and says, now listen, don't, uh, don't think that this is just something small. This is simply tremendous, he says. You are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. It's not as if this is a sudden afterthought of God. This is something God's been doing from the very beginning and you're built on the foundation and Jesus Christ is himself the great cornerstone of the foundation. The thing that gives the character to the whole building. And then he says, and the whole lot of you, Jew and Gentile, in Christ, you're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. For the habitation of God in the Spirit, a home of God in the Spirit. No wonder the Apostle Paul loses his breath and sort of wanders in the next chapter for a while. He, st he starts off as if he was going to go on, and as you all know, he suddenly has a bigger side and says, now look here, this is the mystery. This is the mystery of the ages. Do you know what the mystery is? He says, well, I'll tell you, so you can just understand the insight God has given me into this glorious thing. He says, this is the, the, the mystery that God, he says in Ephesians chapter 3 and uh, verse 6, that God has made the Gentiles, that's all of you, fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in the Messiah, Jesus, through the gospel. There you are. That's the mystery. Well, you can't, you, you, it's too much for us. But just wait, the apostle says, don't, don't stop here. I'm going to take you up higher. And we go up high and we have that tremendous last part of chapter 3 where he says, first of all, strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man. That's the first. That Christ may dwell in you by faith. And then he goes a little higher and says, listen to this. To the end that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be strong to apprehend with all the saints what is the height and length and breadth and depth. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled unto all the fullness of God. Now there's nothing more tremendous than how can anyone be filled unto all the fullness of God. There it is. And then suddenly we come right down in chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called. And then we come all down to the whole thing comes into practical circumstances. You folk are one. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Now then see that you, you give diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit. To maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then he goes on from that to the whole thing of the body building itself up. And then he goes on to all these things about drunkenness and lying and stealing and bitterness and clamor and so on, reveling and all these kind of things. He, he brings it all into the light of this and says, now this is what God has done for you. Now let these things go. Put them off. Be done with them. They belong to the old, not the new. And on and on he goes to all the other practical relationships of life. You've got the same thing in the Colossian letter. A little more confused, perhaps, but you've got the same thing in the Colossian letter. First, you have a tremendous um, uh, dissertation, if you like, a tremendous message on, on the fullness of God in Christ. He has been given the preeminence in all things, head of the body, the church. Oh, it's tremendous. We find out that he is um, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We find out that everything was created through him and for him. 
It's absolutely tremendous. It pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. It's just marvellous. And then he says, Christ in you, the hope of God. Think of that. Now just you try and get that into your hearts this evening. Think of it. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Everything created, things in heaven, which you have perhaps... I haven't seen not necessarily visible things, think visible and invisible, thrones, prince, but everything for him, through him, unto him. He's head of it all, pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. He's not only reconciling, he's in you. Well, of course, our mind's just real. How could someone so immense, infinite, be in us? That's what the Apostle Paul said. He's in you, the hope of glory. And then he says in chapter 2, verse, As therefore ye receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And then you get all, the whole thing brought down to things like what should you eat and what you shouldn't eat. What day you should keep and what day you shouldn't keep. Should you be a Sabbatarian or not? Should you keep Passover or not? Should you have Easter or Whitson or Christmas or not? All these little fiddly things, things that many people say, oh, write them off. We want to live in the clouds. Marvellous it is to have a saviour like that. So immense, so tremendous. But no, it all comes down to little things. Little things. Like what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. And what days you should keep and what days you shouldn't keep. Or whether there are special seasons and all the rest of it. And so on. And then we come back to the old thing again. Drunkenness, parties, covetousness, malice, railing. And all the rest of it, Apostle Paul says, put the whole lot off. Who do you think is in you? Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Do you think, he says, that Christ can be any, have any part with such things? How can Christ be in you when you do these other things? And then he goes on again to all the practical relationships. You've got the same thing in the Roman letter. Exactly the same thing. He starts off in the most awful mess in Romans 1 that man has made of himself and the devil behind man and then he goes on to the grace of God which has justified us freely in Christ Jesus by Christ Jesus and then he goes on not only that he says you're not only justified you've been crucified with him buried with him and raised with him and then he says don't you think that's the only thing you're dead to the law and then he goes on and says and the spirit of God is in you Think of that. And he says, if that's not enough, let me tell you this, you're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Think of that, that's Romans 8. And then he goes on a little further, and he says, now just, just you wait, just you wait. The whole natural creation groans and travels because of the Spirit of God. And you can't pray, don't you ever think, he says, you dear little Christians, you think your little five minutes of prayer in the morning and five minutes of prayer at night are shaking the heavens? Why, says the Apostle Paul, there's a ministry of intercession going on in you that you don't even know about. Those kind of things that you sometimes feel inside was like a rumbling of an earthquake. You don't know what to do. Some people say, let's speak in tongues. Thank God for the gift of tongues if anyone's got it. Let it out in rapturous praise and worship to God. But let me say this quite clearly. There's another kind of language which won't even come out in, the, in, in, the, in, in tongues. And that's that groaning which cannot be uttered, but which is according to the will of God is the most mighty intercession any human being can know. It's the kind of thing of being like a pressure cooker screwed down on top. 
You've got something inside that's shaking and you don't know what to do about it. It's the Spirit of God. And you think, oh dear, I don't know what's wrong with me today. But it's, you know what it is? It's the Spirit of God in you trying, he's interceding. No one more filled with the Spirit than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it says at one time he groaned. Another time it says he sighed deeply. That's a higher level of things. Thank God if we've not got there, if we've got something joyful and gay and so on. Oh, thank God for it. But don't think that that is the crown of everything. It isn't. There's something beyond that. Deeper than that, which God wants to lead us into. Well, I mustn't stop there. That's Romans chapter 8. Then when he comes to Romans 9, 10, and 11, you've got a most wonderful uh, um, revelation of the purpose of God. Why, the Apostle Paul says, you dear little Gentile Christians, you think you're everything, do you? You just remember this. It all goes back to Abraham. And beyond Abraham, it goes back beyond Adam to God himself. He was the one who chose. He chose to create the human race. He chose Abraham out of them all. He chose to give him a promise. And then he says, you just remember this. You are not everything. You are just the branches that have been put into something else. Much more than you. The, the trunk carries you, not you, the branches. So don't you get high-minded and think we're everything. Because you're not everything. You've just been added in to what already exists. And I think that's marvellous. And then he says, don't, don't just get this quite clear. Your salvation isn't just a question of you making a decision. It goes right back into the heart of God. Before time was even, time even had begun. That's where it all began. And the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God is working everything out according to his purpose. So wonder, no wonder we have two doxologies. At the end of Romans 8, we have this tremendous, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And so on and so on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall this, that, or the other? I once heard Mr. Redpath go through the whole list. And that deacons meetings at the end. Shall anything separate us from the love of God? Nothing, he says. Now, the end of the next three chapters, he comes and he, he bursts into another doxology of praise and he says, oh, how unsearchable are his ways. They're past tracing out. That's exactly so. <laughs> and the Apostle Paul is the one to say it because he's done a pretty good amount of tracing in the first eight chapters. And then just to cure us of thinking that we've got it all, he says, now then you understand that all this matter of justification and sanctification and glory, it all goes back into an, into an infinite mystery. None of you can understand. It's beyond us. And then when it comes to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, he comes right back down to earth with a bump and says... I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, a, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your spiritually intelligent worship. 
And then he goes on, and what does he talk about? He talks about all kinds of things. He starts off with the church, starts off with its ministries, and then he goes on a little further, and he starts talking about showing mercy with cheerfulness, exercising hospitality, um, all kinds of little things. And you say, oh, what's that got to do with that marvelous purpose of God? I was lost in it was, a, I mean, having old, old Mrs. So-and-so round for a meal. Surely that's not got anything to do with that. Or, or having those folk that suddenly arrived on Sunday, all five of them, and rather put us out. That's not got anything, surely, to do with that infinite purpose of God that went from, from before times eternal on into eternity, has it? Yes, the Apostle Paul says it has. And that Christian that you've had uh, a collision with and said some rather harsh things about, has that got... Yes, he says. And so he goes on. And um, all those other things. The taxes you owe on the car. The radio license. Your television license. Has that got anything to do with it? Yes, says the Apostle Paul. It's got everything to do with it. You can't just live anyhow if you realize that God had you in his mind before time even began, if you realize that God has gone to such lengths to justify you and sanctify you and finally glorify you, you can't live anyhow. If Christ is in you, it's just tremendous. Well, now, you see, I hope you begin to understand just how amazing this all is. It's not just a question of ethics and laws and so on. God isn't interested in pretty theories. God isn't the kind of person who multiplies words. Confucius did a marvellous job on ethics. And the Lord probably helped him in his own wonderful way, because Job wasn't one of the covenant people of God. Well, I'm quite sure that Confucius was probably helped by the Lord. And there are others, too, that have done a marvellous job when it comes down to ethics. The Lord doesn't multiply words. He's not interested in pretty theories. That's the whole point. You've got these marvellous ethics. But who can live by them? Who can live by them? And that's the whole point. The Lord's not interested in pretty theories or lovely teachings or glorious truth just as something up there. God is only interested in the truth being worked out in reality, in practice, in the most humdrum circumstances, so that the whole of eternity is pinpointed onto a kitchen thing, or pinpointed into an office, or pinpointed on your life with its funny little circumstances, obnoxious or otherwise. That's the point. Therefore, the world, the job, the home, are the sphere in which the whole counsel of God is not only revealed to us in practice, but worked out in us and through us. The Lord just isn't interested in people just getting the whole lot up here. 
What he's interested in is in your job, in your home, in the practical circumstances of life, to somehow be able to educate you, instruct you. That's why the Lord takes such pains and why sometimes he gives us such funny circumstances. Because he wants us to discover the whole gospel. Not just a little gospel, however marvellous it is, of being saved from sin and having our sins forgiven, but the whole counsel of God. And so the Lord presses us into circumstances in the office, in our homes, in our relationships with people in the world, in which we've got to find the whole counsel of God. Or collapse. Well, when you realise it like that, it's just tremendous. We must never think that only when we are gathered together like this is there any real value. Now, this is the kind of mentality we can get. Now, of course, you know as well as I do, the Scripture says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So much the more as you see that day approaching. So the greater the pressure, the more difficult it is to gather together, the more we've got to be careful to be gathering together in the light of his coming. But let us never fall into the trap of thinking that only when we're gathering to, gathered together is there any real value. As if, now we're the church here, and when we go out that door we cease to be it. As if here is the truth and liberty and all the rest of it. As soon as we go out that door, it, it's ended. We go back into the hostile, alien, foreign world. That's not true. We are the church wherever we are. We are the body of Christ wherever we are. There is tremendous values in our assembling together. But let's try and broaden our view to see that the world, our job, our home, our circumstances are the sphere in which God makes real all this. We come together to comfort, to strengthen, to correct one another in order that we can go out into, these, into this sphere and somehow or other God may make real to us what we've been talking about, what we are in Christ. Sometimes also we, have, we fall into the mistake of thinking that only when we're reading the Bible in our little quiet time, or having time of prayer, that's the only time there's real value. That's the only time we're in touch with the Lord. Don't you, don't you kid yourself. You, may, you must fight to keep that time, because that's your supply line with heaven. But when the children are screaming their heads off, or when some salesman's knocking at the door and the telephone bell's ringing at the same time, you could be quite sure the Lord's coming to you. Just at that point, when we get so irritated and flustered and upset, or when in the office the boss accuses us of something that we've not done. And oh, we get so angry. And then we get bitter about someone else who perhaps we feel is really the, the, the person behind, behind all this. See? You can be quite sure the Lord is more present then than in your quiet time. You must have that quiet time. But it's in these circumstances, these practical little things, that the Lord comes to us again and again and again. Well, now, let's just uh, uh, look at uh, these spheres we've mentioned. Now, all I'm going to do is simply 
uh, take a number of scriptures and read them and make a comment. The first of all, the child of God and the state. Well now, first of all, Romans chapter 13, uh, verse 1. Now I'm going to read it again in Philips. We've read this earlier, but I'll read it again. Now listen to it very carefully. Every Christian ought to obey the civil authorities, for all legitimate authority is derived from God's authority, and the existing authority is appointed under God. To oppose authority, then, is to oppose God, and such opposition is bound to be punished. The honest citizen has no need to fear the keepers of law and order, but the dishonest man will always be nervous of them. If you want to avoid this anxiety, just lead a law-abiding life. And all that can come your way is a word of approval. The officer is God's servant for your protection. But if you're leading a wicked life, you've reason to be alarmed. The power of the law, which is vested in every legitimate officer, is no empty phrase. He is, in fact, divinely appointed to inflict God's punishment upon evildoers. Now, that's the magistrate and the judges. You should, therefore, obey the authorities, not simply because it is the safest, but because it is the right thing to do. It is right, too, for you to pay taxes for the civil authorities are appointed by God for the good purposes of public order and well-being. Give everyone his legitimate due, whether it be rates, taxes, reverence, or respect. Now, it's sometimes very hard to keep this. And you all know the kind of mentality that we Christians have, especially we um, um, evangelicals. You know the kind of thing? They're, it's the old Jewish trouble. Dog. They're all dogs, all of them. Un uncircumcised Philistines. Now, you may not agree there with me, but it's exactly so. We look at everyone in the office sort of inferior. And of course, there's a sense in which it's true. They're not saved. The Spirit of God isn't in them. So we can't help it. We get inferior. Just like animals. Now, if you go in like that, of course, when the boss sort of thing, you've got some feeling you don't want to do such and such a job, you feel, does it really matter? See what I mean? We can get the same idea about the government or the civil authorities. Because we feel, oh, well, they're unsafe people. They're all going to be judged in the end. Great white throne, they'll be all cleaned off. Why should we sort of listen to them? But you see, although no one puts these thoughts into words, they are a kind of mentality that's found in many, many Christians. God's word says something quite different. It says our town council and all those authorities are, as it were, appointed by God and we have to accept that. They may do things that we don't quite agree with and so on, but they are, they are law and order. Now, some believe that this is what is meant in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when it says, uh, that which was strength, law and order. Because we know in the end there's going to come this lawlessness, this complete breakdown of public law and order. Now, do notice this, what it says here. We can read a few other scriptures and then make a few comments. Um, uh, there's Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Put them in mind to be in subjection to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready unto every good work. 
rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready unto every good work. It's interesting it says to be ready unto every good work concerning local authority, concerning national authority. All right? Again, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. Be subject to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or unto governors as sent by him. Now, we would put prime minister. For vengeance on evildoers and for praise to them that do well. For so is the will of God that by well-doing you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, now here it is, you see, free. You're not really under them. You're above them. You're free. And yet not using your freedom for a cloak of wickedness. Got it? But as bondservants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the king. Now, isn't it interesting? We are to honor the queen in the same way we honor the church. Honor the brotherhood. Honor the queen. Okay? And we are to, it says, uh, I'm sorry love, sorry, love the brotherhood. We're to honor all men and to honor the king. But we're to love the brotherhood. But we're to honor all men and to honor the queen. In other words, respect. Respect. Um, Matthew chapter 22 and verse Matthew chapter 22 verse 21 he said unto them that's the Lord Jesus render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's now here you have the Lord's own word to us concerning our relationship to the state we are to render to the state what belongs to the state. We are to render to God what belongs to God. Now, when there comes a conflict between God and the state, we have to render to God what is God's. All right? Remember how they forbade Peter and John to preach anymore on this? I mean, they said, we cannot do it. Can't do it. We have to obey God rather than man, they said. Well, now, all this is tremendously important. It means that you and I, as Christians, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, have got to be subject to every ordinance of man. For the Lord's sake. Testimony is involved in this matter. It is a question not only of our loyalty to uh, uh, public law and order to our uh, uh, rulers, but it also is a question also of um, a whole matter of taxes and so on. Now, this is a little point, but it's very important. I'm amazed at the number of Christians who think that uh, uh, there's no need to be too careful. Well, now then, we are to uh, uh, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's? You know, the spirit, we all live in the spirit, uh, in the age in which the spirit is to get away with everything we can. But this is not right if the Lord is in us. That's not what we are in Christ. So we are to, uh, to uh, uh, 
pay the taxes that are our due. And on top of that, may I say another word? There are many Christians who don't vote. Well, you have absolutely no justification for any complaint or criticism if you get a poor government. I don't really, I mean, you, 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 you should be subject to every ordinance for man's sake. You ought to vote. You are a citizen of the country, and therefore you should vote uh, intelligently before God. Very, very important. If one day you get a communist government, don't just say, ah, well, ah, well, it's, it was foretold in Scripture. I mean, the point is you have a duty before God to your country, to the nation in which you live, to vote according to your conscience. And then we have to be subject to whatever um, we've got in uh, that has been voted in. Well, now, uh, we can't go on. There are many, many other things on this. But uh, we, have, uh, we have... It is placed upon us, a responsibility is placed upon us, to be rightly involved in national issues. See, I, I, I can't say this too strongly. I was brought up in a company when I was first saved, in a company where the, the general feeling was that, oh, that belongs to the old man. See? Voting, anything to do with national... We are, we are the people of God. It's nothing to do with us. But this is not scriptural. It's not scriptural. We have a duty before God. A conscientious duty before God. Well, now, that's one thing, the Christian and the state. We are, for the Lord's sake, to be subject to every ordinance of man. We are to obey the rulers. We are to um, uh, pay our taxes and uh, all the other things, I'm afraid, come into it, even though at times they seem rather heavy and unjust. We must seek to vote in the right way. Um, to try and alleviate our sufferings in this respect. Now, the second thing is the child of God and work. Child of God and work. Now, here's another whole great sphere in which the child of God has um, a, a, a relationship. He, we want, we want to find out what is the right relationship of the child of God to this place of employment or to the sphere of work. Now, first of all, work is absolutely honourable in the sight of God. For instance, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labour, working with his hands the thing that is good, that he may have whereof to give to him that hath need. Now, it is very interesting, just from the purely psychological point of view, that the Word of God links working with one's hands with those that steal. Why do people steal? Because they, don't, they want to get something quickly. They want to get the fruits of hard work without the hard work. See? In other words, why work solidly for, a seven, for, for, for say, a five-day week for £14 if you can bill for the £14 anyway and have a lovely time all the way through the week, resting up? That's the idea behind it. See? Now, this is the spirit in which, very much with everyone else. Why work? If we can get the money at the end, that's all we're interested in, getting the money, isn't it? So take it easy. Everyone else is. Take it easy. 
but uh, it's not what the Word of God says. Now again, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, that you study to be quiet and to do your own business <laughs> and to work with your hands, even as we charged you, that you may walk becomingly toward them that are without and may have need of nothing. In other words, don't all the time have to look to the number three account. Don't all the time have to look for others to help you. Work with your own hands. There's nothing dishonorable in that. Then again, you turn 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we command you, if any will not work, neither let him eat. Verse um, uh, 12. Now them that are such we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Then Titus chapter 3. I'll read this to you because there is an alternative which you'll find in your margin, your Bibles. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to read it to you in the New English Bible. This is how it puts it. Such are the points I should wish you to insist on. Those who have come to believe in God should see that they engage in honourable occupations which are not only honourable in themselves but also useful to their fellow men. Uh, and then verse um, um, 14. And our own people must be taught to engage in honest employment to produce the necessities of life. They must not be unproductive. Now, it seems to me quite clear that, that our testimony is deeply involved with our place of work. The way we work, our attitude to work, um, our whole spirit, the spirit with, in which we carry it out. It seems to me we, we are more, our testimony is more than a little bit involved with our place of work. When you think that the majority of us here spend over a third of our lives in our place of work. It's incredible. You all know, of course, we spend a third of our lives in bed. It's a tiny fraction of our time we spend together as the church. How important to God it is that the large part of our life that we spend in our workplace. We must never shut down in our minds and say, God is not with me here. I'm in the, gent I'm in the, in the uh, heathen world. I'm in the pagan world. I'm just outside of everything else. That's all here. When I get back amongst the people of God or home, I come straight back into an atmosphere of, of the people of God, into a, a right, godly atmosphere. This is wrong. In our place of work, God is with us. And God is very, very interested in what we're doing there. He doesn't want a whole portion of our lives, one third of it, a kind of huge blind spot. It is most important. Now, what does the scripture say about this? Well, there are a lot of very interesting things it does say. First, what does it say to employees? To all of us who are employed by others. That's the majority of us, I think. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 to 8. Servants, be obedient unto them that according to the flesh are your masters, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not in the way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
with good will doing service as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that whatsoever good thing each one doeth, the same shall, be, shall he receive again from the Lord, whether we be bond or free. Now then, just note these things first of all. As unto Christ, and again in verse 7, as unto the Lord. In other words, the way we do our job is to be done as if we were stewarding or preaching or praying or singing a hymn or something. We're doing it unto the Lord. Every time Sunday morning we say, now let everything be done unto the Lord. We want it for the Lord. We've come here to give something to the Lord. Right, says the Apostle Paul, let your job be an offering to the Lord. Just let it be like praise out of your lips saying, Lord, you're wonderful, we adore you. Right, with your hands, adore him. Answers the word of God, every good thing you do, which goes unnoticed by your boss, who may be a hard man, the Lord will reward you. Now, isn't that incredible? In other words, it means that the Lord is in fact your employer. And he watches the way you do your job. Many of us are going to lose our reward in this matter. Because the Lord watches us all the time. You see, it's not that old, gnarled boss or employer, whoever it is there, who seems to have a face like thunder and gets us down at every available opportunity, or those other people we're working with. When we do a good thing, even if someone else gets um, the praise for it, God sees it. It's as if, as, it's as if we were doing something in the gathering. The Lord says, you'll be rewarded for that. That was to me. As unto the Lord. Now another thing I want you to notice is that as servants of Christ. Well we all think, oh wouldn't it be lovely to be a servant of the Lord. Full time servants of the Lord. But you're a full time servant of Christ in your job. He's employed you. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter where you are. You're a full time servant of Christ. And he says, now look, forget the boss. Forget. I'm the boss. I'm the boss. See? Now you're a full time servant. So let your life be one long ministry. And I shall see everything. Now, note again, there's something more here. It says, uh, doing the will of God. Now, most of us think, oh, but is it really the will of God? It is. Doing the will of God from the heart. In your job, doing the will of God from the heart. Most of us think, oh, no, 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 I don't. All that marvellous thing about the plan of God and purpose of God from eternity to eternity. And it comes down to my scribbling that little notice out for the boss or something else. Answering rightly on the telephone. Then slamming it down. It's all come down to that. Yes, doing the will of God from the heart. But there's something else too. As I've said in verse... Uh, eight, knowing that whatsoever good thing each one doeth, the same shall he receive again from the Lord. Well, now, that's marvellous. One third of our lives is spent in the office or in the, whatever it is, in our sphere of, of work. My goodness me. Think of the reward we could pile up if we did it as unto him. It's just tremendous when you look at it like that. Well, look, I've got a few more scriptures, quickly. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Let as many as are servants under the yoke, and that's how the Lord calls it, as under the yoke, count their own masters worthy of all honour, that the name of God and the doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them. In other words, don't get round them. Because they're brethren... But let them serve them, though, rather because they that partake of the benefit of believing and beloved. 
These things teach and exhort. Isn't that interesting? Again, Titus 2, chapter 2, 9 and 10. Exhort servants to be in subjection to their own masters and to be well-pleasing to them in all things, not gainsaying, don't answer back, not purloining. Oh, we can all purloin. Look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Now, look at that. Adorning. You go out on the streets on Sunday evening fishing and rightly so. You think you're a testimony. You are. You're witnesses unto him. But look, this is where you're a witness. For one third of your life you're a witness in the office. You wouldn't think of, do, of, of getting irritated or other things out there because when you go out fishing you take a step in faith. You say, I'm doing this for the Lord. Why not look upon your job like that? I'm doing this for the Lord. It would bring a new attitude into the whole thing. Colossians 3. There's an awful lot in Scripture about these things. Colossians 3.22. Servants, obey in all things them that are your masters, according to the flesh, not some things. <coughs> not with eye service, or oh, how easy it is to do something, you know, outwardly, but grudgingly inside. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing the Lord. Why should we fear the Lord when we're at a job? Nothing to do with him, is it? Whatsoever ye do, work heartily. Oh, how that needs to be said. Work heartily, not lazily. Heartily, as unto the Lord, and not unto men. There we've got it again. Knowing that from the Lord ye shall receive the recompense of the inheritance. Ye serve the Lord Christ. Now, isn't that amazing? Just think about it. Why, your job's going to be marvellous, isn't it, tomorrow morning? <laughs> Aren't you looking forward to getting there? Yeah. 1 Peter, chapter 2, and verse 18. Servants, be in subjection to your masters with all fear. Now listen to this. This is where we all get caught. Not only to the gentle... All right, uh, I'm sorry, I've lost the verse. 18. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the thrower. Oh dear, it's easy to be a little thing, get over the thing with, with a boss that's good and gentle. But when you've got a thrower boss, that's an irritable boss. Bad tempered, authoritarian, and so on. Unapproachable, thrower. Like a stormy day, all the time. Well now, be in subjection. All right then. Otherwise, leave the job. It's as simple as that. Whilst you're paid for the job, don't all the time make things difficult, but accept. Now, what about employers? Well, there's something in the word for employers too. For anyone who's in a position of responsibility where you have to tell others what to do. Here it is. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. And ye masters do the same things unto them, and forbear threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no respect of persons with him. Do the same things. In other words, let the, the employer, whoever's got a position of responsibility over others, let him do it as unto the Lord. Not just throwing his weight around, or her weight around, unto the Lord. Then Colossians 4 uh, and verse 1. 
Masters, render unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Well, now, when we take this whole question of our sphere of work, um, what do we find? We find that it's a question of our attitude. It must be, it's a question of what are we doing? Are we doing it as something we've got to do to get money, or are we doing it as unto the Lord? Or, uh, secondly, conscientiousness. Are we doing it heartily? From the heart, doing the will of God. Again, is, are we efficient? Are we really obeying, not only in letter, but spirit? That's efficiency. We can all sort of do what we're told. You know, sort of, well, we've done it. I did it. Sort of take that letter down to the post office. One week later, you've taken it down. I did it. <laughs> You see, that's the kind of thing you get again and again, you see. Well, not interested in the job. Well, now, efficiency, that's being obedient. Punctuality. You know, it's an amazing thing. We must all remember this. We are paid for certain hours. And the Lord watches this very, very carefully. We steal, not from the boss, but from the Lord. He watches this. You lose your reward. It's all docketed off in the end. The Lord's absolutely just in these things when you get there and you say, oh, but I did so and so and so and so. And he says, yes. But for 30 years you were half an hour late every day. <laughs> That's your reward gone. Well, it well uh, uh, cancelled out everything else. Mm. It's a testimony, isn't it? Well, now, very swiftly, lastly, the child of God and the home. There's a lot here too, um, because there are many of us here this evening, and we don't go out to work, and we may feel, well, what's this got to do with us? Well, what about the home? First of all, the question of marriage. It's an honourable estate, uh, as the marriage service says, and as the book says too. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, where it says, Let marriage be had in honour among all, and let the bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Again, you've got it in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God created to be received with thanksgiving by them that believe and know the truth. In other words, just like work is an honourable thing, marriage is an entirely honourable thing. And there is a testimony deeply involved in marriage. Now, if you want to escape all the trials and cares of marriage, then, as the Apostle Paul says, be like him. <laughs> Stay clear of it. But if you're going to shoulder the responsibilities of a home, remember this, it is not for your gratification. There is a testimony deeply involved in that home. Deeply involved in that home. Every home is a testimony. And the testimony of Christ, the testimony of the church, your personal testimony, is all deeply bound up with that home. I can't underline it enough. 
Now, it's very interesting, the scripture says a lot about this. For instance, it has a lot to say to wives. Uh, uh, in Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Um, verse um, 24, uh, As the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives also be to their husbands in everything. Verse 33, verse 33, Nevertheless, do ye also severally love each one his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see that she fear her husband. Now, will you notice this very interesting little word that reappears again and again? Let wives be subject to their own husband. It's a very interesting thing. We're also deceitful. It's much easier to be subject to someone else's husband. <laughs> it's absolutely true. You know the kind of thing... Well, Herbert says so-and-so-and-so-and-so, but I went and saw brother so-and-so. You see? And he said so. Be, let them be their own husband. Uh, I, I'm not saying that for, for a joke. You'll find that th uh, it comes again and again. Why did the Lord put this little word own in? Be subject, because of the deceitfulness of us all in this matter. To try and somehow uh, um, involve others. Cancel out something which is wrong. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, be in subjection to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, will you notice that that says, as is fitting to the Lord. Ephesians 5 and verse 22 said, as unto the Lord. So just as your job is unto the Lord, so... You, you wives are to be subject to your husband as if it was the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It means simply this, that when you are subject to your husband, you are being subject to Christ. And therefore, the opposite is true. When you are not subject to your husband, you are not being subject to Christ. Well, it may seem hard, but that's exactly what the Word of God says. Well, look at a few more scriptures. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. That they may train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, chaste, workers at home, kind, being in subjection to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. There's the word own again. Subjection to their own husbands. Again, 1 Peter... Chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. In like manner, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that even if any obey not the word, they may without the word be gained by the behaviour of the wives. It does seem a bit unfair, doesn't it? That it's the wives upon whom the scripture puts so much. That behaviour of the men. Well, there we are, we can't argue with that. It's the word of God. Uh, without the word, be gained by the behaviour of the wives. Beholding your chaste behaviour coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of braiding the hair and wearing jewels of gold or putting on apparel. May I just make a comment on this? Some people think it's altogether wrong to wear a jewellery or braid their hair. It doesn't say that. Because it says here, putting on apparel. You better all appear naked. <laughs> doesn't mean that at all. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. In other words, don't let it consist in the jewellery you wear. Don't let that be the only thing about you. That is about, the, about some women. That is all there is. 
braiding of the hair, uh, jewellery, and apparel. Inside, it's as rotten as rotten can be. It looks so sweet outside, so becoming, so attractive. But inside, roaring lions. Don't let it be like that. Let it be the hidden man of the heart in the incorruptible apparel of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner aforetime, the holy women also who hoped in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. There we got it again. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose children ye now are, if ye do well, and are not put in fear by any terror. I've often wondered what that means by any terror, but still. Then you've got something about wives. Now, isn't it interesting that evidently here there is something which is very much bound up with being a Christian. If you have accepted the yoke of marriage, if you have accepted what the scripture calls this being bound to a man, then you must abide by the vows that you have taken, come what may. And it is in that sphere that you will prove the Lord, not in contradicting, not in gainsaying, not in criticizing, but in loving. Now, it is an extraordinary thing that the scripture never anywhere tells wives, except in the um, uh, Titus, a verse, to love their husbands. And there it's rather interesting, the word is lover of your husband, be a lover of your husband. It only says obey. It takes for granted that ladies love their husbands. Uh, ladies, of course, by nature, are much more loving than men. And so the scripture, God is such a psychologist in this matter, he doesn't even bother to talk about love. He says, it's obedience. I have to talk about it. To the men, it's all the time, love, 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 love. <laughs> all the way through. You husbands, you love your wives, you see. But when it comes to the ladies, no word of it, except in this one instance. It's rather this other. Obedient subjection. Because, you see, you can love your husband and yet be not in subjection at all. Now, let me say this, the time is rushing away now, but, you see, you must understand this, dear sisters. There is no one in the whole world as influential as women. The men will have to shut up for this moment and close their ears. There's no one as influential as women. Women always, in the end, get their own way. It doesn't matter what... I don't care who argues about this. In the end, women get their own way. But listen, you'll never get your own way by being a tyrant or a dragon. Never. Learn from the Scripture. Learn from the scripture. It's those women in scripture who were the most quiet and the most broken and the most humble who influenced men no end. Sarah is an example. Quite a character, you know. Not one of these squashed little people. Contract murder. Absolute character, Sarah. Yet, my, she influenced Abraham. He went down to Egypt because of Sarah. Quite wrong. When she influenced him. And she's in another number that Hagar, never been a question of Hagar, it hadn't been for all Sarah. She was the one who suggested it. 
You see, you, you, you must get this quite clear that women have a way of influencing men, but you don't have to think that you've got to wield the big stick. You just have to love them, <laughs> feed them, <laughs> love them and feed them and, and generally be quiet and listen to them. And, and, and you're fine. You laugh, but it's absolutely true and you all know it. That's why you're laughing. <laughs> Away. Now, the scripture is so clear on this little point. I mean, it's so... It, well, I just look at the other on the, on the question of husbands. What does it say to husbands? We mustn't let them get away uh, tonight. Ephesians 6, 5, verse 25, it says this, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. Now, isn't that interesting? No gratification there. He gave himself up for it. Husbands have got to go so far in this matter of loving their wives, even if they do find them at times rather difficult, that they give themselves up just like Christ gave himself up on the cross. In other words, he laid down his life. And you don't have to enter into this relationship if you don't want to. But if you do, you must give yourself up. You can't have it both ways. And then chapter, same chapter, verse 29, For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as Christ also the church. Okay? Verse um, 20, um, uh, 33, Nevertheless do ye also love each one his own wife, even as himself. Verse 28, last part, He that loveth his own wife loveth himself. Now, isn't it interesting that this word comes again and again and again and again? It's a command from the Lord. Love. Then again, if you look at Colossians 3.18, Wives, be in subjection to your husbands as fitting the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Now, why does it say be not bitter? Because most men, and maybe this will annoy some of the ladies, but most men have much broader minds than women. Much, much broader. And they often feel that women are sort of trapping them. So you get this bitterness. They feel they're trapped. They feel they're sort of like, uh, uh, or, uh, like um, uh, trailing, uh, something, you know, it's so literally like an octopus, you know. Got out of that rather well. Uh, like an octopus, you know, sort of just many arms. They just feel, and they're bitter, bitter about it. Many men you find talk when they talk amongst themselves, although I wish I was free. Bitter. And yet they wouldn't give up their homes or, 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 the, or the family because they know very well that they've got so much. You understand? It's interesting, isn't it, that it says here, be not bitter uh, 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 against them. 1 uh, Peter chapter 3 verse 7 ye husbands in like manner dwell with your wives according to knowledge now I want you to listen to the way this puts it very very beautifully Phillips puts it like this similarly you husbands should try to understand the wives you live with, honouring them as physically weaker, yet equally heirs with you of the grace of life. If you don't do this, you will find it impossible to pray properly. Now, think of that. The Lord says your prayer life can be hindered. 
if you don't seek to understand your wives. Well, you see, all, all this comes down to the same thing, and I've been trying to say the whole evening, that all these little things that we think have nothing to do with being a Christian have a tremendous amount to do with it. Such simple matters as these. I must say, it's very interesting that in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25, it says, if the wives have anything to ask, let them, um, to, uh, to find out, let them ask of their husbands at home. Isn't that an interesting comment? It doesn't mean that a wife shouldn't have any mind of her own. What it means is this, there should be communication between husbands and wives. How few husbands and wives have any communication about even spiritual things? This is, let them ask their husbands at home, let them get it all sorted out and talk over it, pray over it, together. They're heirs together. Well, you see, the home is a tremendously important thing. That's why, you see, the testimony of God is not only in marriage, the way a man loves a woman and a woman loves a man, how they both, as it were, honour each other and go through together, but there's a tremendous testimony involved in a home. That's why it says in Ephesians 3, that mysterious word, of, from, he is the Father in heaven in whom every family on earth is named. There's a testimony involved in a home. And I don't think that there's ever been a time when there's been a more tremendous and vital need of Christian homes as today. Christian homes are like a little oasis in an evil world. And you know, you, you fathers and mothers, you know what's happening in the schools. It's incredible what's happening in the schools. I mean, you don't know... We don't know what the young, young people now are growing up into. The spirit that's there, spirit of rebellion, spirit of lawlessness, spirit of exploration and inquiry before they've even reached teenage. That Christian home is the only place where a youngster can find the law. Don't always pitchfork responsibility onto the church. It's in the home, as well as in the church. It's in the relationship of husband and wife together and in the creation of a home that the children are going to find, in the end, the answer to life. And it's a tragedy how many children of Christian parents turn away. Now there is a lot, with this we will end, in Scripture about Christian parents. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, it says these words, uh, Fathers, ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but nurture them in the chastening and admonition of the Lord. Don't provoke children. And then in Colossians 3, verse 21, Fathers, provoke not your children, they be not discouraged. Or again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, well, we'll leave that one, as we haven't got much time. We'll leave that. Now, to me, as I see it, there is a tremendous... It is a tremendous calling to be a parent. Whether a father or mother, tremendous calling to be parents. But I must say this. In my estimation, in the end, it is Christian mothers who have the greatest influence. Children see in one sense more of their mother. I don't think there's anything more, a more serious calling than to be a Christian mother. 
That dear Christian mother is like a, a, a reed in a storm. Like a lighthouse in a storm. Children never forget their mothers. Never. The first prayers they were taught, the first stories they were told, the quality of spiritual life in the mother. It is a very interesting fact that some of the greatest of God's servants have had extraordinary mothers. I think, for instance, of Watchman Nee. I think of John and Charles Wesley. I think those women left a stamp on their sons that will never be eradicated. Now, if any of you want a terrifying book to read, you read Susanna, Mother of the Wesleys. Oh, and then you moan. Thirteen children, husband continually in debt. She was the most extraordinary woman of her age. Her husband, who was a minister, when he preached, the place was half empty. But when he went away, and she had prayer meetings in the cottage, the place was packed. While she preached the word, she got into trouble, of course, when he came back for preaching the word. But people got saved all over the place. She was an extraordinary woman. Now, the, 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 it seems to me that in 1 uh, Timothy, or 1 Timothy um, 5, verse 14, it, I like this word, I desire therefore that the younger widows, or women, marry, bear children, rule the household, give no occasion to the adversary for reviling, for already some are turned aside. Well, now, isn't that in rule the household? Now, listen, Christian mothers. Your job is to rule the household. So don't let your husband take that one away from you. He's head of the house, but you rule it. You rule it. You don't rule him. You rule the household. Not your husband. <laughs> now, most, I'm afraid, most ladies... What they want to do is rule their husbands and they want him to rule the household. It's quite wrong. Your husband is the head. You rule the household. That's why it's quite wrong sometimes for, for, for Christian mothers, I think, at any rate, to expect their husbands to do everything. They have a sphere. We have a calling. Each of us has a calling. We are, we're meant to, to create a haven of rest. A place of refuge, if you like. I know it's very noisy enough when you've got lots of young children. But it's, it's home. It's home. And that's what you, only a mother can create home. Father can't do it. Father can't do it. Mother is the one who creates home. Now, I can only say that the testimony of the Lord is involved in all this. What a lot there is in Scripture about children. We've said about Parents not provoking. It, it says in the scripture about obeying your parents, children, and uh, honouring your parents, and so on. And there are a lot of other things which we can't go into this evening, which all come into it. It says in the scripture that parents ought to lay up for their children, not children for their parents. Yet at the same time it says also in Timothy elsewhere that if anyone has a widow and that widow has children or grandchildren, let them take responsibility. There should be no such thing as putting old people into old age homes amongst Christians. It's a disgrace. It's 
disgrace. I'm not saying necessarily that you should introduce um, your mother-in-law into um, two flats, uh, two rooms in a bed-sitter or something like that, but something should be done. We have a responsibility, and there's so much in Scripture about this. Honour your father and your mother all the days of your life. It is in these relationships that so much is worked out. I hope that this evening, um, this little study will have been a practical value. I only wish the whole company could have been here, really. Because I think it's of tremendous value, these practical relationships. We tend, because we are dealing always with principles and other things, sometimes to overlook these things. They're vital. We don't do these things because we've just got so many regulations. We do it because of what we are in Christ. And when we see it like that, it transforms everything. Husbands love their wives because they see it's what they are in Christ. Wives are subject to their husbands because they see it's what they are in Christ. And a whole different attitude comes. Children can obey their parents. Parents can care for their children in a new way. Well, now we're not saying there aren't the difficulties. There are difficulties. There will be difficulties while we breathe down here. But the Lord is bigger than it all. And it's in these practical circumstances in the world, in our jobs, and in our homes that the Lord makes real all these other tremendous things. May the Lord help us. May he help every one of us to be those who have a living testimony in every one of these things. Shall we pray? Lord, we do pray that thou wouldst really apply this thy word wherever it is needed. Lord, thy word is so faithful. We ask thy forgiveness, Lord, because we all, every one of us, we come short, some way or another, of thy word. But Lord, we do praise thee that thou art able <clears throat> to so lead us and so empower us, so fill us with thyself, that Lord, we're able to live an altogether different kind of life because of what we are in thee and what thou art in us. Lord, help us, we pray, so that in this world, in our jobs, in our homes, we may be, dear Lord, what thou wouldst have us be. We may be a testimony. Oh, Lord, help us. We pray for the children of parents in this company that thou wouldst help all those parents, Lord, to live in such a way, to create in a home in such a way that, Lord, those children shall find Christ. We commit ourselves to thee then, Lord, and pray that thou wilt indeed make real this word in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.